Okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're still here. Um, so, so we're going to talk more about uh, Yaakov Avinu, uh, Jacob, and, and pick up from, from last week we were talking about the ladder, which uh, is got its feet on the ground and stretches all the way up into heaven. And the idea was that, that Yaakov, who represents truth, is really straddling both aspects of, uh, or rather the, the, the totality of our experience in this world, meaning to say our, our, our earthly experience as well as our, our spiritual eternal uh, existence. Um, and truth encompasses the entire entity. And that latter is talking about going from below to above and from above to below and we're going to we're going to get into all of that but but we're going to we're going to add an entirely new dimension which is going to further this conversation and you're going to see how thematically it very much works with the latter but it's taking it um, it's sort of answering uh, the question that the latter asks and by that I mean this totally epic climactic event of Yaakov wrestling with the angel and so I want to sort of juxtapose these two things, Yaakov in the ladder and Yaakov wrestling with the angel, and to see how that's sort of like thematically one piece and it's a deepening of that discussion. Okay, so, so the, the, the one element that I just asked us to, to keep in mind with, um, with the ladder before we get into the, the, the wrestling match that takes place is that is that it says that the angels who were ascending the ladder um, saw an image of Yaakov Avinu's face carved into the, the throne of glory. And of course, there were, there's four images there. Um, that's from the prophet Yechezkel. There's the, the lion and um, the eagle and the, the ox and, and then the human being. So those are four different images. But who is that human being? That was Yaakov Avinu. So you see Yaakov above and you see Yaakov below in terms of this latter experience, right? And again, we, we, we discussed this last week if you want to hear the, the whole talk on that. But, but anyway, let, let, let's pick it up from, from the beginning of this week's Parsha. And, and it, it starts off in a, in a, in a very surprising, um, almost, almost shocking way, which is that Yaakov is just overcome just this this ongoing series of, of tests in his life. He's, his brother Esau has said he wants to murder him. He runs for shelter and he's learning in the yeshiva of Shem and Ever for something like 14 years without sleeping in a bed. So just constantly learning, finds refuge in the Torah. Then he goes to the house of Lovin. And Lovin is like basically spiritually speaking like the the snake from the Garden of Eden. They say that he was the same energy of that. And then Lovin gets reincarnated as Bilam, who tries to wipe out the entire Jewish people and curse them, and who is one of the top advisors of Paro later on. So you have basically this confrontation with Lovin that somehow Yaakov not only escapes from, but he's able to escape from giving birth to the, to the 12 tribes of Israel and to escape with great wealth. You know, and, and but... Lovin has one final confrontation with Yaakov. Yaakov is able to get away from that. And they make this peace treaty, Yaakov and Bilam. And the next thing that he knows is that Esau, 
who when he last saw him promised to kill him, is waiting for him with 400 soldiers. So it's, it is, it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And it says that Yaakov sends angels to Asaph. And Rashi famously says, angels mamish, meaning don't think that that means messengers, like human messengers, but that actually means these, these divine forces, angels. And, and what, what, what angels was he sending to him? So according to some opinions, it was actually the, you know, when you do a mitzvah, you make an angel. So it was actually the mitzvahs that, that Yaakov did out of the, the own sort of like spiritual might that Yaakov had demonstrated during his lifetime, the angels that he produced through his heavenly service, those were the angels that he was sending to, to, to Yaakov, to Esau rather. Now the Chedush Yerim says something very, very interesting because there's a line, there's a line here which, um, which gives us a lot of pause which is, Yaakov is in the middle of all of this, and it says, Yaakov became very frightened, and it distressed him. And it says, so he divided up the people with him and the flocks and the cattle and the camels into two camps. But this line here, Yaakov became, not frightened, Yaakov became very frightened. This is, this, I mean, for all time, for all time, any, any, anyone who's studying Torah is trying to figure out what does this mean that Yaakov became very frightened? Because didn't God, first of all, isn't Yaakov this, this, the, the greatest exemplar of spirituality, of truth? Didn't God himself promise Yaakov that everything was going to be okay? Maybe it happened earlier in his life, but nonetheless, it was a divine prophecy that Yaakov had. How is it possible that Yaakov could have been frightened, much less very frightened? The Torah doesn't throw in a word like ma'od, like very, you know, so, so everyone tries to answer this question. Everyone is trying to figure this out. But the Chidush Arim says something very interesting, just to add to the question. It's not to the answer, but to add to the question. Shouldn't Yaakov have been reassured by the fact, not just of the divine promise, by the, but by the fact that there were all these angels around? In other words, he sees this, these, 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 this spiritual presence is very palpable before him. Shouldn't that have been reassuring to him? That's, that's the question. So now listen to this answer, a phenomenal answer. The Chidush Arim says, actually, it made him more scared. Why? Listen, listen to the logic of this. And I'm going to put it into the words of um, someone who gave me this example. He was not so long ago uh, in the airport in Belgium. And in the airport in Belgium, there are these armed soldiers, heavily armed soldiers, in the airport because of the terrorism that's taken place there. And when he's walking in this airport in Belgium with heavily armed soldiers around, that's not reassuring to him. That's frightening to him because he's like, what is going on that this place needs heavily armed soldiers Obviously, this is a very dangerous place. And so Yaakov Avinu sees these angels and is not reassured by their presence, but rather draws the conclusion, if God has to be sending all these spiritual angels, I'm in a lot of trouble. Do you understand? So this is actually making it scary. 
So, but again, we have the we have to go back to the very very basic initial question, which is that, but Yaakov is Yaakov. So there are many 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 answers that are given. There are many 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 answers, but I instead of running through them, I just want to zero in on one. Okay, and this is kind of an answer I'm giving right now, which is that you know, it says Yaakov is very frightened. Whenever you see the word very in Torah, there's a lot going on. So, you want to hear something interesting? Ma'od, ma'od, which means very, if you rearrange the letters, it spells Adam, which means a person. You see, Yaakov is a person, and a human being who is confronted with this type of terror gets scared. Period. End. Period. End. And you see, it's very, very important that when we learn all these sources, especially as we get into the deeper, more spiritual, mystical aspects of them, and you realize that there are all these climatic, epic, and we're going to get into it now, really cosmic things going on, that you never lose touch with the humanity of the person who's going through this. This is very essential, because if you do it, you do it at great risk. Because if once you... Once you once, this, once these human beings become sort of like mythic characters in your mind, what the Yetzirah is doing is telling you that that's him, but this is me. That standard of behavior is not incumbent upon me because he's, he was something else, as opposed to he or she was just like me, is just like me, only they actually did the work. Do, do you understand? That's why we can't lose touch with their humanity, not because that gives us an additional appreciation for them, it does, by the way, but because it keeps us in the game of improving ourselves and working on ourselves to the level that we have to work on ourselves. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the message. Okay? It's very important. Very important. So, so... So Yaakov, so the Chidush Arum says something very interesting. He says, you know what? Yaakov is, is worried, and if you're worried, you have to pray. Now, just understand the, the, the depth of those words. You see, sometimes you could say like this, and this is something we shouldn't do. This would be a logical progression. You say, um, I'm at the office right now. There's a meeting going on behind closed doors. Um, maybe they're discussing me. Maybe they're not discussing me. Part of me thinks that they're discussing me. Why, are not, why aren't I in that meeting? This is a very familiar situation. Many people find themselves in this situation. I know I have. So you then experience some anxiety, right? Now, at the moment that you experience anxiety, you can do one of two things. You could say, but, but wait, um, I believe in God, and everything God does is good. And therefore, it's foolish for me to experience anxiety. You could do that, and that would be something that would be normal for a very spiritual person to do. right? However, the Chidush Erem is saying otherwise. He's saying that if a person experiences worry, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't matter what 
quote-unquote level they're on, if they're worried, they have to pray. (laughs) Do you understand? In other words, Yaakov is worried right now. So it doesn't matter what level Yaakov is, is, is on. It doesn't matter. If he is experiencing worry, it's he has to pray. A person has to pray. That, that, that's a very, very important lesson. Um, okay. So now, I just, I just tell you just quickly, but it's, it's amazing. It deserves more analysis and thought, but I just tell you quickly. The Or HaChayim brings in the name of, he says, in the name of my holy grandfather, right? His holy grandfather. That if you add up, because Yaakov sends waves of gifts, and if you look of, of, of animals, this number of this type of animal, and that type of that type of animal, and this number of males, and this number of females, and it's wave after wave after wave. So, you know, you, you, you don't think to add them all up, right? But the Holy Grandfather, the Or HaChayim, added them all up. And you know, Yaakov, uh, Esav's name is also Seir. And that's his Har Seir. That's his sort of spiritual headquarters. That's the mountain. Do you know that, that, that he found that if you add up all of, the, all of the gifts that Yaakov sent, it adds up to the word Seir. And interesting. And Seir also is Taf Kuf Fe, which means power, but it also means to attack. So, in other words, he's taking this, he's taking, he's taking this exact number of gifts, which is the ace of's number, because it's Seir, it's his name, but it's also this word of power, right? So it's just not his name, it's his power, but it's also the name to attack. So it's like all these exalted kavanas, that 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 Yaakov has, that he's essentially, you know, just it's amazing actually. Just but but off 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 to the side. We we have to keep on going. Tkefut, David. Tkefut. When something is tkef, it means it's legally grounded. So to very interesting. So it gives it a, almost a legal way. Of existence, hadavar hmm. takef means the thing is valid. Valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know it's. Uh, Just think about that. How it's connected. Yeah. Um, so Yaakov is is transacting like something very, very, very amazing here with 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 all these things and. Um, but I want to get to the battle. So, so, so you have this line here, which, which is that, which is before he he actually confronts Asaph. Before he confronts him, it says he spent the night, um, or rather, I'm sorry. It says, Yaakov was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. So, so that's just one verse, and we were we were kind of laughing at that verse because, 
It's sort of like if I were to say to you, and then I, I met this girl and we had eight children and 40 grandchildren and we lived happily on Mars. It's like, wait a second, that, wait, you just said a lot of things there. You know, it's just like we got to scale it back. Let's unpack that. I mean, this, this line here, Yaakov was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. We know that there's like volumes, volumes of information that's contained in that one verse. So, so we have to really try to understand that. First of all, we know that that's the angel that, that Yaakov wrestled with. And not just the angel, but the Medrash tells us the angel of Asaph. And not just the angel of Asaph, but the Sutton. And there's so much going on in that one verse, but we have to really build to it. And, and again, we're going to connect this to the heavenly ladder um, uh, moving forward. But, but let's, just, let's just set the stage. And also the Medrash provide something which is very, very interesting, which is the whole backstory of who that person was and how they came to fight. That's sort of like, that, none of that information is contained there. Okay. So now, let's, uh, let's, let's zero in on, 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 on what happened. So Yaakov is instructed that all of these waves of gifts should happen. And now there's this river, and we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this river called the river Yabuk, which is Yud Beis Kuf. Okay? Um, and and uh, that river is very significant for many, many reasons. One reason, though, is on the most here and now level is this river is separating Israel from outside of Israel, from Aram, which is, I guess, Syria. So you have, you have this, this river... And this whole story is being sort of like, um, is taking place on one side of the river and on the other side of the river. So this is very significant because we're talking about Israel and everything that implies and all the lands basically outside of Israel, right? Which is the other side of the river. Very, very important. And what's happening right now is just to set the, just to, so you have a strong visual, because this is important to understand all the teachings that are coming. Yaakov is taking the remainder, the last of his flocks, and he's bringing them over this river, the, in, in English we say with a J, right, the Jabok River, okay? So, but the, the, this river, Yavok, right? He's, he's bringing them over, and now he's going back either to check to, to make sure that he hadn't forgotten anything, or by another account, he remembers that he forgot these little jars of oil. Right? So he's going back for those. So in other words, let's just, let's just be very clear. He's just, trans, he's just completed the transfer of all of his family and possessions from outside of Israel to Israel. And now he himself is going one last time just to make sure that all the you know i's are dotted and t's are crossed he's going to the back to the other side of the river and now he's all alone and now he gets attacked okay everyone got it now one of the explanations that the medrash gives and this is this is really fascinating and you'll see that we can apply this every friday night we can apply what we're about to learn right now why was he all alone because it says, that, it says that Yaakov was alone. Listen to the verse again. Yaakov was left alone. All right? What, what does that mean, that he was alone? 
Well, on just one level, do you want to hear something interesting? At this point, he's the only Jew in exile. Right? Because his whole family and all of his possessions are in Israel. And right now, he's the only Jew outside of Israel in the world. So that's, that's alone. He's also physically alone, just on the most simple level. But let's talk about these angels, because we were just talking about angels at the end of last week's Parsha and the beginning of this week's Parsha. What does it mean that he was alone vis-a-vis the angels? So now we can get back to the latter for a moment. You see, the idea is that there's a separate, um, there's a separate realm of angels that are guardian angels for people who are outside of the land of Israel, and a separate category of angels for people who are inside the land of Israel. And by the way, this is one of the explanations of what it says when when Yaakov dreamt of the ladder and he saw angels going up the ladder and angels going down the ladder. This is one of the explanations that's given because he was leaving Israel. So who were the angels going up the ladder since he was leaving Egypt, since he was leaving Israel? Those are the guardian angels that were protecting him in the land of Israel. Who are the angels going down the ladder? Those are the angels who are coming down to protect him outside the land of Israel. Okay? Now, now, now think of it this way. We have to understand what does it mean that it says Yaakov was alone. So Yaakov crosses, he's already transferred everything into Israel. Now he goes back one final thing. Well, all of the angels, according to this explanation in the Medrash, all the angels that were protecting him outside of Israel had already gone up. And all of the angels that were protecting him inside the land of Israel were already, already came down. Now when he crosses over this final time, he's now without any guardian angels. Because the ones that were te- protecting him outside the land already went up. Very interesting idea of him being all alone. However, there's a verse that when it's talking about Hashem, it says Hashem is alone. Because on the deepest, deepest level, the only thing that exists is God. That's the only thing that exists, truly, is God. At the end of Elena, the first paragraph of Elena, we say, Ein od means there's nothing other than God. So, you know, the, the deepest commentators explain that Ein Od means nothing else exists, period, other than God. God is literally the only thing that's going on 24-7 in the world. So when it says God is alone, and here it says Yaakov is alone, well, it doesn't mean that Yaakov is without any heavenly protection, because God is always here. Remember, God exists in this realm 100% as much as he exists in the highest realms of heaven. It's just he's more hidden in this realm. But he doesn't exist any less in this realm. Always very important to understand. So when it says Yaakov is alone, the Medrash takes this word alone, compares it to this phrase where it says God is alone, to show you that God is also there. (laughs) Okay, and we're going to pick up more on that in a moment with the wrestling match, God willing.
In fact, maybe, maybe we should do it right now while we're on this subject. You see, it says that... Um, it says that... So let's, let's read into it again. Yaakov was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. Now, the Medrash comments on this, and this is something just everyone should know for their own learning. Whenever we get into um, pronoun territory, where we leave out the actual name of the figures who are being referred to, pronouns are very tricky, because pronoun, when it just says he, well, who's he? Is he Yaakov, or is he the one wrestling with Yaakov? So anytime there's ambiguity there, basically there's an invitation for you to understand it on a different level. You understand? So now listen to how ambiguous this statement is. And by the way, this is not my observation. The Medrash is pointing this out. When he perceived that he could not overcome him, <laughs> well, who are you talking about? Who's, who, who, who thought they couldn't overcome the other? It just says, he, he, and him. But then the verse continues, he struck the socket of his hip. So Yaakov's hip socket was dislocated as he wrestled with him. Okay, so now, now we know at the end of the verse, it seems like the, the angel perceived that he couldn't win. But now let's revisit that phrase again. And again, we're, we're, we're going with the Medrash over here. It says, when he perceived that he could not overcome him, but, but do you see how that first phrase is, is extra, when he perceived? It could have just said, when he could not overcome him, he, he hurt his hip socket. You don't need, when he perceived that he could not overcome him. It could just be, when he could not overcome him, he attacked him in this way, by, attack, by attacking his hip socket. You, you understand? So, so the fact that the Torah throws in this extra phrase, when he perceived... The question is, what did the angel perceive? Since he must have perceived something, otherwise the Torah wouldn't be throwing this word in. So, listen to this. The Medrash says that the angel perceived God standing over Yaakov. <laughs> That's what he perceived. And when he saw that God is standing over Yaakov, then he knew he can't overcome him. Again, why are we bringing this now to, to, to tell you this idea of alone and alone? That Yaakov was alone, but God is also called alone in another verse, and we put them together, you see that God was there. Right? So, what's the take-home from this, just to make this real for all of us? You're never alone. You're never alone. God is always there. And you might be in the most existential place of fright, Right? I hope not, but you may be. And just like God was there with Yaakov, God is there with you right now. You, you, you know, remember, if, if God didn't invest himself, his divine energy, his presence into this world, the entire world in the snap of a finger would disappear. So, the greatest proof that God is here and active in this world and present in this world is the fact that the world right now even exists at all. Because one can't be without the other. 
So if there is a world at all, that means that God is present in the world. And if there is a you at all, that means that God is present in this world. (laughs) Because your very existence is only extant because you have a soul, and your soul is a piece of God. So if you're standing there wondering, where is God? You, You couldn't even ask yourself that question unless God was right there. Because you wouldn't exist. So if you say, how could God exist right now? If you exist, God exists. That's for sure. So, so Amalek, remember Amalek is the spiritual descendant of Asaph. It says, Amalek attacked us in the desert. And there's a famous Torah that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Slonim Rebbe. It's, it uses the word um, lecha. Lecha is singular. It says uh, that Amalek attacked you, singular. But it should say lechem. Lechem is plural. It should say Amalek attacked all of you in the plural because he attacked us as a nation. So what does it mean Amalek attacked you individually? So the Slonim Rebbe says something so deep. He says that the way Amalek attacks you is by telling you that you're all alone. See, that's why it's attacking you in the singular, even though that wasn't really the reality of the situation. He attacked the entire group of us. But the way the Yetzirah gets to a person is by first telling them, you're all alone and no one cares. Right? And then once a person begins to think that or believe that, then all of a sudden they're vulnerable to the worst things happen. Because then a person begins to panic, and then a person wants to take refuge in all sorts of things that are bad for them. Because they need to find some sort of shelter from the storm. But the shelter from the storm never went away. But it's, it's hard, you know? Can you imagine being on a ship in the middle of a storm like the way they describe in Yonah? Right? You're talking about waves, like waves lifting a ship to terrifying heights and then dropping you down suddenly. And like the, the, like the, the boat is completely going to smash apart. But even then, God is there. You know, it says by Yonah, interestingly, it says by Yonah that, that they, they woke up Yonah and they said, you know, Who's your God? Who are you? What's, what's going on? You know, there's a crisis. How could you be sleeping at this moment? And Yonah says, no, 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 no. It's, it's all because of me. And they're like, okay, well, you know, that, that, they did not expect that answer. So they're like, no, let's draw straws and make sure, like, so they draw straws and it's like it comes out on Yonah. And they're like, look, we're all going to die. Just what, what are we going to do? And Yonah says, just toss me in the river. And it's like, they're like, no, that, that doesn't sound like a good idea. God's not going to like that. And, 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 Yonah's like, just, just go ahead and do it. So they pick him up and they say, basically, God forgive us. And they throw him in the water. And this outrageous storm stops. And you know what it says? What the other sailors did? They all converted to Judaism. Because they saw that. They saw the truth of it right in front of their faces. You know, I went to um, 
I went to this screening of a movie. It's, a, it's about this Israeli who was um, trapped in the Amazon for three weeks. It's called The Jungle, and it's standing Dan- Daniel Radcliffe, uh, Harry Potter fan. It's a Jewish guy also. And um, it's, it's this amazing story because you, basically you can't survive in the middle of the Amazon jungle for three weeks. It, it can't be done, basically. They say that the, the locals, the people who live there, they, they couldn't do it. It can't be done. It's funny because, you know, when I came home and I told my wife that I had been to this thing, she said, oh, he was Israeli, so he, he had been through the Israeli army. And it's funny because I thought, oh, that's how he did it. <laughs> you know? Because they never mentioned that in the movie because I think it would have made a less good movie. <laughs> they said, oh, yeah, and of course he was, you know, a member of the Sahal, you know? Of course it's from God, but it, it does explain it a little bit better. I mean, you, couldn't even, you can't even wrap your mind of, about how it could have possibly been the case, but at least now you, you understand. And I went online and I, I researched the, the guy a little bit, and sure enough, he had just been in the Israeli Navy, and you know, a lot of uh, Israelis after their mil- military ser- service, they do you know, far-flung trips around the world, so you know, it, all, it all makes sense, but anyway. Anyway, it was a miraculous thing, but he was, he was left for dead. He had been, there was this shipwreck, and he was isolated, and there was a guy who was a, 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 a Catholic guy from Oregon, right, named Kevin, who was looking for him very heroically and wouldn't give up and wouldn't give up, and finally, just while this, while, while the, his name is Yossi, is dying, <coughs> Kevin finds him and saves his life. And sure enough, Kevin moves to Israel, converts to Judaism, and lives on a kibbutz now. Um, miracles. Miracles. So, so we're never alone. Yaakov is not alone, even as he's alone. But, but you see... Both things are true at the same time. And you see, if a person wants to be, as Reb Shlomo would say, for real, you, you have to be extremely respectful about your emotions at the same time that you're grasping the totality of the spiritual truth. And that's, that's really, th- this is what it means when we talk about like Reb Shlomo said, the hardest thing in the world is to have your feet on the ground while your, heads are in the cl- while your head is in the clouds. To have both simultaneously. You see, if someone is dismissive of emotions, or if someone is dismissive of their own emotions because they say, well, it's all going to work out, it's all going to work out. That, that's beautiful if it's coming from a very amunadic place. But sometimes people are like, it's all going to work out, it's all going to work out. But in their saying that, they're not acknowledging their own fear, their own trauma. And it's not, it's not a deeper level of service because you're not bringing the entirety of yourself to God at that moment. You're just blocking out a lot of the dissonance that's going on. A person has to bring their entire self to God, 
which means they have to bring the believing aspect and they have to bring the disbelieving aspect. And they have to confront the disbelieving aspect because that's part of them also. You know, Rabbi Freeman was saying this morning something very beautiful. He was talking about the korbonos. These are the offerings that we would bring. And it's like very, you know, the korbonos are like, you know, they're intense. You're taking an animal, you're, you're killing it, you're, you're splattering its blood, you're cooking the meat, you're eating the, it's, it's intense, right? So one of the things that you, that you say before Baruch Shamar is a person is supposed to take on uh, their love of Israel. So in other words, you're, you're, you're supposed to basically unite, very consciously unite your soul with all of the other souls of our people. Right? But, yeah, before Baruch Shamar, you'll see there's a little phrase that says that I'm taking myself to, upon myself the mitzvah of loving every Jew. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to say that. It's, it's important. So, but what Rabbi Freeman said was, wait a second, wait a second. In a way, we just have to take it step by step. You can't all of a sudden begin davening and say, oh, everything's beautiful, I love everybody, everything like that. No, the whole point is to take your animal nature and to slaughter your animal nature. Did you ever hear this expression, preaching to the choir? Preaching to the choir means that when someone stands up in front of do-gooders and says, we have to do good, and everyone goes, yay, we have to do good. But wait a second, those people are already doing good. You're preaching to the choir. The people who you want to talk to are the people who go, we have to steal and kill and rob. And you say, no, and they go, what? (laughs) Those are the people who you want to be talking to. So when you bring yourself to to pray, when you bring yourself to do mitzvahs, whatever it is, you have to bring the animal nature inside of yourself. Right? That's That's the first step. You don't just sort of like deny that aspect of yourself. And then that gets a free pass. And then after it's sort of like, um, hey, I'll tell you what, here's, my, here's all my darkest needs and thoughts. You go, Davin. I'm going to wait outside. <laughs> I'll meet you in the car. And then we'll figure out the rest of the day. Right? That's not the dynamic that you want to invite in your life. Right? You want to bring that side of you to the davening as well to a mitzvah as well. In fact, that's the more important invitation, that part of you. Okay, so so before, just so it makes sense, before we get to Brook Shamar, we're saying all the korbonos. Right? That's that's why. In other words, first you have to address that that more animalistic side of yourself, of ourselves, and then we can sort of introduce the higher aspects of ourselves. So, so now, I want to return back before we get into this epic battle, because there's really some big stuff coming here. I want to just tie it into something that we do every Friday night, because I think that if you can have this in mind, that will make your singing Shalom Aleichem by the, by the Shabbos table more special. Okay? So, remember, the Sefer Yetzirah, says that all of reality can be boiled down into three components. Time, space, and soul. Okay? So, 
So the, 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 the great example that they give is, is Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, you have the holiest day of the year. That's time. That's Yom Kippur day itself. Place. The holiest place of the world, in the world, the Kodesh Kedoshim. So on Yom Kippur, you go into the Kodesh Kedoshim. And Saul, the Kain Gadol, is entering into the holiest place in the world, the Kodesh Kedoshim, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. See how all three together, time, space, soul, Kain Gadol, Yom Kippur, Kodesh Kedoshim. Okay. So, but what that shows you is that there's correlations between time, space, and soul. So the question is, Shabbos is an idea in time. What is the correlation of Shabbos, which is a time-bound idea, to space? Where do you see the concept of Shabbos in space? And the answer is, Rav Tzadok points out that it's the land of Israel. In other words, what, what, what Shabbos is to the other days of the week, the land of Israel is to the other nations of the world. Okay. So with that in mind, listen to this. Very interesting. We have angels which protect us during the days of the week, and then we have a separate set of angels that are, that are, that are protecting us on Shabbos. So just like this latter imagery, just remember, we're going to get back to this in a moment, the idea that, that uh, Yaakov Avinu is, is going across this river, the river Yabok, right? Which is, which is, you have the land of Israel on one side, outside of Israel on the other side. You have the days of the week on one side, you have Shabbos on the other side. So when we say Shalom Aleichem, what are we doing? First, the, thing, the first thing is that we're greeting angels. Then at the, at the end of the song, what are we doing? We're saying, We're sending them away. So what is the idea? The idea is that here it is, the end of the week, it's Friday night. Which angels are we greeting? We're greeting the angels that have come down for Shabbos. Which angels are we sending away? The angels that have guarded us during the weekdays. You see, so angels are coming down and they're going up. Just like, just like with the land of Israel. But this is, this is now in time. This is Shabbos. So just like it works in, with the land of Israel, it works with the concept of Israel in time, which is Shabbos. It's the same, same idea. So if you have this in mind, when you're singing Shalom Aleichem, the angels are ascending and the, and the angels are coming down, and you've got this bridge between Shabbos and the rest of the days of the week, it will enhance your experience. Okay. Now let's get to this wrestling match. So, first of all, we have to understand, it says in, in the Talmud, in Baba Basra, in, on page 16 there, I think that this is a very helpful teaching. I know it was very helpful for me. That we have these different forces, dark forces that we'll call. The Yetzirah, the Satan and the Malach Hamavas, the angel of death. So in, in Baba Basra, in the Talmud, it says, this is, all, this, this is all one thing. This is all one thing. It's one energy. It just has different, different names. So, so how does it work? 
how does it work? So the Talmud explains that the the, the Yetzirah tempts a person into sin, right? To do the wrong thing. Okay. By the way, the word sin is not a Jewish word. That's a that's a non-Jewish translation. Because sin is not I don't like sin. Sin is sin is not Jewish. We have a word chet. Chet is the Jewish word. And there are different levels of it, whether you do it intentionally, whether you do it unintentionally. But chet basically means to miss. And as Rabbi Aaron points out, like in, in Israel, when they play soccer, if someone kicks the ball and they miss the goal, they say chet. And it doesn't mean that the person did an avera. Like the person doesn't have to do tshuva for missing the goal. But what it means is, it's a much, it's a much better understanding of what it means when we do something wrong. Because when you miss the goal, you either went too little in one direction or you went too much in one direction. That's what it means. Like, for instance, let's, let's take, for instance, the sin of um, uh, Lashon Hara. You either said too little or you said too much. Do you understand? It's a, so it's not like you're a good person or you're a bad person. Now I was a good person. Then I was a bad person. Now I'm a good person. Now I'm a great person. Now I'm a terrible person. It's, that's not what it is. A person has to learn how to modulate and regulate their energy, their actions, their speech, their thoughts. You have, to, you have to dial it in. You have to make it a little bit more exact. So it's not just, you know, here, this is me today, and this is me tomorrow, and that was me yesterday. You know, now I'm very generous. You know, I'm throwing money around. Now I'm very drunk. You know, I mean, it's like... <laughs> It's not, that's not it. A person's got to like dial it in. You got to, you got to be like exact with your energy. Okay. So it's not, so it shouldn't be too much or too little, just depending on how you feel that day. You hone it, you hone it, you hone it. And that takes time. That takes years. Don't, don't think that because now I, I attended a class or I read a book. Now I'm an expert. It really doesn't work like that. I can tell you from my own experience. It takes, it takes a lifetime. It takes a lifetime. Okay? So... talks about it Yeah. Everybody does. And by the way, if you think you have arrived, this is the greatest proof that you haven't arrived. If you think you've arrived, this is the greatest proof that you haven't arrived. If you think that, oh, yeah, I remember when I used to have a Yetzirah. That was really hilarious, wasn't it? Oh, the things I would say and do. You know, I mean, anyone who's like, you know, thinking in those terms is a fool. Is a fool. Um, okay, so, 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 so it says that the the Yetzirah tempts a person to do something wrong. Then the person does something wrong in this instance. The Sutton is the heavenly accuser. The Sutton then says, look, he did something wrong. I want permission to take his life. And then permission is granted. And then the Malach Amavis, then comes, the angel of not so much, then comes and takes the person away. So do you see how that's one seamless narrative? The Yitz, that's, and that's from Baba Basra. That's from the Talmud. It's a very clear laying out, how, but, but how it's one energy. This is one energy. It's just operating. One attacks the, 
the um, spirit, the other attacks the body, the other accuses the person and is able to transact the whole system. Okay? So, so there are different energies attacking a person at different levels. Okay. So when it says that Yaakov, that Yaakov wrestled with this angel, this is, this is very, very interesting. Because it says that this, that this angel was the Sutton. That this angel was the, 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 the ministering angel of, of Asaph. In other words, he's about to confront Asaph in the here and now, in the physical world, in the morning. He's sending these gifts, he's praying, he's preparing for battle, he's doing everything that he can. But right now, he's just left alone. And so, so it's like, first comes the spiritual battle become before the physical confrontation. That's one way of looking at it. Now, I saw Rabbi Khan brought something that very, very interesting. He says that earlier, earlier, Yaakov, Yaakov is, is referred to as an Ish. Okay? Ish means man. And here, when it says that Yaakov wrestled, it says, with an Ish. <coughs> So you know, one of the ways the Torah works is that if, 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 if a word is used in another context and it's used in this context, sometimes you can, since Yaakov is called an Ish, and now it says Yaakov wrestled with an Ish, well, who is Yaakov wrestling with? Maybe Yaakov was wrestling with himself. So now this is getting very intense because wait a second, we just said that Yaakov was 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 wrestling with the root of all evil in the world. Now we're saying that Yaakov was wrestling with himself. But we have a Yetzahara within ourselves. So we're not saying anything definitive here, because the greatness of the Torah is how many levels it's it's, it's functioning on simultaneously. Because remember, we say that the Torah is the infinite, right, condensed into the finite. And you can endlessly unpack the Torah forever, 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 because the Torah is not a book. The Torah is this sort of crystallized, majestic aspect of the whole world, basically. It's a living organism, the Torah. It happens to appear in printed volumes, but don't be fooled. It's not a book. It's not a book. It's the fabric of reality. So there is this aspect where we have to wrestle with ourselves and we have to confront those aspects which are inside of us. And again, when we're talking about truth, one has to acknowledge the truth. One can't just sort of like be spiritual sometimes in a way that doesn't acknowledge the pain and the suffering that we're going through and the pain and the suffering that's in the world. We have to address it. 
because that's Yaakov. Yaakov, remember, is Emet. Emet is Aleph, Mem, Tav. The first letter, the middle letter, and the last letter. If something is true, it has to, it has to be expansive. It has to cover everything. But Yaakov is also simultaneously wrestling the evil in the world. Not just within himself. The evil that exists in the world. That's also true. That's no less true. And it may be even more true. I don't know. There's just a lot going on here. Okay? And now I want to tell you something which was really the thing that was just like blowing my mind and everyone who was like learning this, we were all getting our minds blown over this thing. All right? This river, Yabok, listen to this, listen to this. And I'm pretty sure this was from the Jikova Rebbe, the Imre Noam, okay? So he points out, okay, let me just set the stage for this thought, okay? So when we talk about when we, we when we talk about the spiritual map of the universe, we're talking about ten spherot. Okay, those ten spherot can be divided into three categories. You have the upper three, you have the middle six, and you have the lower one. Okay, the upper three, the middle six, the lower one. Each one of those each one of those sections has a divine name that correlates with it. So the upper three, that's Ekia. Okay? Yes. Aleph He Yud. Then the 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 middle, the, the middle six, the divine name that correlates with that is Yudke Vavke. Then you have the bottom one, and that's what we call Adnus, Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud. Okay? Also pronounced Adonai. So that's the, that's the bottom name. Now, so in other words, these are three names, again, which are describing the energies as they come down in the ten sphere. So, and just in case you're wondering what the ten spherot are, just in, it's basically, remember we're using um, anthropomorphisms here. God has no physicality whatsoever. As, as I like to say, God doesn't have a body, he makes bodies, right? It's a very, very big difference. There's nothing corporal about God at all. So this imagery is not literal. But God, so to speak, takes his outer garment of light and condenses that light, condenses that light, that's called simsum, into the physical universe. Okay, so we've got stages of energy coming down to materiality. Okay? So if you take these three divine names, Ekya, Yudke, Vavke, and Adnus, and you add them up, it adds up to the number 112, which is the Gamatra Yabuk, which is this river that Yaakov crossed. So just in case you're not getting it yet, <laughs> let me just paint a picture for you. Where did this wrestling match take place? This wrestling match took place, you have to imagine this visual, across the entire spectrum of the ten sphere. In other words, this was the most epic cosmic battle imaginable. Because the location, Yabuk, is hinting at 
the entirety of the divine name spectrum going from this world all the way up to Keter, all the way up to the top of the ten sphere up. So if you, if you can imagine this wrestling match taking place from basically the bottom of reality all the way up to the Kisei covered the throne of glory, now you have a, a sense of what the scope of this battle, what it actually was. And now you can understand something. I'm just adding this. When it says, when the Medrash says it, the Medrash says something that always stuck with me. It always like was like, never fully understood it, why they wanted to give this bit of imagery. It says that when they were wrestling, the dust went all the way up to the Kisei covet to the throne of glory. But now that you see that Yabuk is the Gamatria that takes you from the bottom all the way up to the top. You see, for sure the dust went all the way up to the Kiseo covet. Of course, because that was, the, that was the, the playing ground, so to speak, of where this battle took place. Now, Bencion Simmons said something that blew me away. This was like, I thought, like, you know, like worthy of the Magalia Mukos. He said that he learned a while back that when one takes three steps forward for Shmona Esrim, that a person is supposed to have in mind Yerushalayim, that's the first step. The second step is the Beis Hamigdash. Then the third step is the Kodesh Kadoshim, the Holy of Holies. So the first step forward, Yerushalayim, Beis Hamigdash, Kodesh Kadoshim. Do you know what that spells? Yabuk. Can you imagine? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Just that the that when when now you have you think that this battle with with the with Asaph's angel or with the dark side of our own selves, every time we take three steps forward in prayer for Shmona Esrei, we're entering into that same battleground. It's real. This is real. Now, what amazes me about this is that, you see, sometimes we use things like Gamatria and Roshi Tevos and things like this to sort of like Bederach Remez or Drush, things like this. But I think that here it's telling us Pshat. It's actually telling us the basic level of the text. That we just, we wouldn't even understand what the, the, the text is, is basically saying without these tools. So now we're going to wrap it up. But now I want to just tie it back into the ladder. Told you that we were going to tie it into the ladder. Now what do we say? And again, I, if you have a chance to listen to this idea, what does the Torah say about truth? We talked about the ladder for a whole talk last week. The ladder basically is saying that there's a Yaakov above and there's a Yaakov below. And that the nature of truth is that truth has to encompass all of reality, this world and the next, from the beginning of time to the end of time, from time to beyond time, to eternity. Remember, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, that eternity doesn't mean the endless expanse of time. 
Eternity means a dimension that's above time. So Yaakov, Yaakov is, is this continuum from this world to the next. That's the ladder. He's sleeping below, but his image is above. Now here's the point. Here's the point. You don't get that for free. You've got to battle to maintain that. That's not just a, a, a road that just remains open for you, that, that ladder, that segue. There are people all along the way that are going to try to stop you, including yourself, maybe primarily yourself. And if you think that you're going to be able to get from the bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder without wrestling, the Torah is telling you otherwise. First understand that it's there. Then understand that the only way that you're going to be able to make progress there is by not giving up. And by understanding that you're never alone. Because you can't, you can't do it without that knowledge. And it's not just a nice, pleasant thought that allows you to make progress. It is the reality, because you aren't alone. Because it says that the Yetzirah, it says in the Talmud, the Yetzirah is stronger than you. But the only reason why you can defeat it is because God is there. And you see it, and you see it, because it says the angel perceived that he wasn't going to win. He perceived that God's presence was there. But you know something? We also have to perceive that God's presence is there. Because if the angel's perceiving it, but we're not perceiving it, then that ultimately doesn't help us. We have to perceive it. We have to understand the truth of that. And then we're able to climb all the way to the top. Now for some questions and answers. Freeman, you, you were saying yeah. Robert Freeman said something about slaughtering the, um, the animal soul. <clears throat> yeah. But, but you're, we're really talking more about transforming it than slaughtering it. So yeah. is there any kind of, I, that's why I was a little confused back then. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, they're, 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 they're both two prongs of the same process. Slaughtering it um, suggests that now it doesn't exist anymore. Right. But transforming it also means to make an aspect of it disappear. Mm -hmm. So okay. that is a form of slaughter, but it's, it's, it, 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 it recognizes that it's still there. We, we have to live with the reality that, that, that... See, I'll tell you something. I learned this a long time ago. I thought it was very good in terms of the, the understanding the Yitzhahara. Yitzhahara is like... Um, like if you see in like um, mob mob movies and things like that, where someone turns state's witness and then they wear a wire, mm -hmm. and then they hang out like they're part of the criminal, you know, um, conspiracy, but really they're working for the government. So, so that's the Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara is like, oh man, I'm going to ride shotgun with you. 
It's, it's, it's like it's our co-conspirator. We, we think of it as our best friend. It's sort of like, all right, what are we going to do tonight? You know, what kind of fun are we going to have? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? You know, this and that and everything. And then you think, that's my co-conspirator. That's my best friend, right? And we're having fun together. And then after 120, they call that as a witness to testify against us. And you realize it was wearing a wire the entire time. Like, I thought we were friends, but you were working for the government the whole time. You know? So, so, so that's, the, that's the idea. The, this, the, the Yetzirah, we have to just accustom ourselves to the fact that it's not going away. But it can be, it's, 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 it's um, the level of its influence can be reduced to the point where it, it's not really um, the, 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 the force that it, it was early in our, earlier in our lives. You know, like if you find, like, sometimes you read headlines about what's going on in Washington, and you find out that this chief advisor of the president has all of a sudden has less and less influence. Do you know what I mean? That can be, that can be the Yetzirah for us. It doesn't ever really lose its job, practically speaking. <laughs> but, you know, it sort of gets moved out of the Oval Office, then it gets moved out of the White House, and then, it, you know what I mean? It's just things like that, to the point where it's there, but it's not, it doesn't have a grip around our, our throat or our wallet, you know? Well, I was just thinking, you know, what, what was the purpose of him going back to get these, these, uh, these pachim, you know, and yeah. I was thinking, you know, it's like when we're confronted with a, a challenge or a real problem, we go to some place where we yeah. want to distract ourselves with something minor to give us the time to, to think it through, and it's kind of like engaged in some kind of meaningless activity, and then we kind of get that, you know, we wrestle with it, and then we kind of get kicked back by the angel, in other words, the angel kicks us back and says, "You know, get going. You're 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 off track. Mm -hmm. You know, you're 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 just yeah. not. You have to confront this. You have to you have to get through this, and it kicks you, kicks you right back. But it's kind of like you you've lost some time. You've lost some gate. You've kind of got a little little bit injured in in the process of this distraction, and then but nevertheless, you still have to move forward with the challenge." Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because the rabbis wrestle with this also, so to speak, which is, why did Yaakov go back? Why did Yaakov go back? You know, I mean, I'm glad you're asking this because we just take it for granted. And then Yaakov went back. And you know what I mean? But why did Yaakov go back? You know? So, so, um, so this classic answer, so the Medrash, by the way, asks this question because the rabbis have been bothered by this since the beginning. Why did he go back? And they say that he went back because he thought, maybe I forgot something. I want to make sure that I didn't forget anything. And no one blames him for this, which is very interesting, because, you know, the Medrash is like, they'll, they'll say he shouldn't have done that. And in many places, they'll go, no, shouldn't have done that. But they don't say that about Yaakov here. In fact, they even sort of like um, show us that this is a very good trait that he went back. And they say that 
that the possessions of a tzaddik, you know, for different reasons, um, are very valuable. One is because he earned them in such a kosher way, so so that there's almost a he's almost instilled them with a uh, a divinity because he has achieved them in 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 a very pure way. So they have substantial meaning, even if they're small things. So that's sort of like the classic explanation of why he went back, to show the value of something, that if you work hard for something, that it has value. But you know, it's funny, because my wife often brings up this idea that she learned from her father, who was, uh, you know, went through the Holocaust, which is that uh, if you've forgotten something, don't go back for it. Which is interesting, you know, because that's, that's something that a lot of people lived by in the Holocaust, and a lot of people escaped because they didn't go back for something. But I think that these are probably two different teachings. I think one is if you forgot something and you're in a place of danger, don't go back. That's a, that's a separate teaching. This is the idea that I don't think that he thought at that moment that he was in danger. There was value to something and you shouldn't, you know, if someone owes you 10 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever it is, it's not nothing. It, it, what one should, if you can do it without causing a fight or whatever it is, you shouldn't be dismissive of something that has value. So, so that's that is that that, that is something. Um, anyway. He's going. He's when he goes back. He goes back to places within himself that needs to be that that were never resolved. And so, when I look at his journey, how he's choosing his roots, it's always. You know, going back, uh, forward and back to fix. Okay, so now since you, yeah, okay, yeah. So know. since you're since you're since you're bringing this up, I'm I'm going to bring up something else. Okay. Okay. So this is something that the Medrash says, and this is a whole chunk of narrative right now. That's that's not in the Chumash, not in the Torah, but which the rabbis provide which is they want to know this question, which is a very basic question. It says, like remember I was saying how much is packed into that thing? And then Yaakov was alone and he wrestled with an angel the whole night until dawn. What? Like, who's, who was that guy? Why were they fighting? Like, what is that story exactly? So the Medrash explains it. And I'm going to get back to what you just said. Okay? Which is that the Medrash says that Yaakov crosses back, just says, looks around, did I forget anything? And all of a sudden he sees, he sees another shepherd. Okay, this is now going to be the, this is the angel of Asaph, okay? But he's disguised as a shepherd. And it says, just like Yaakov has flocks, and he has different types of animals, camels and sheep and goats, whatever. So this, this other shepherd also has the same type of animals. And the shepherd says, oh, why don't you cross over the river first, and then I'll go after you. So Yaakov says, okay. Yaakov takes all of his animals across, and now remember Yaakov is in Israel. He's in the place where he wants to be. He's taken everything across. Now Yaakov thinks, maybe I forgot something. Let me just make sure. Which again we say is a positive trait. So he goes back across the river, and then the other shepherd says to him, Why have you come here unless you plan to steal from me? And then 
a battle happens between the two of them. So that's that's what the Medrash says. And and I was trying to understand, like, what is this meaning? And then when you brought it up, I, I have a, a thought on it now. Which is, it not it interesting that this angel now is accusing Yaakov, and it's the angel of Esav, and remember, Esav's big taina, his big complaint on Yaakov, is that Yaakov stole the blessing from him. Okay? Now all of a sudden he crosses over the river, and the angel of Esav is saying what? Oh, you're a thief. Now what were you just saying, and what were we saying earlier, that this whole wrestling match, on the one hand it was with the angel of Esav, but on the other hand, it was Yaakov wrestling with himself. So here's this standing accusation against Yaakov, which is, just to go with the thought for a moment, am I a thief? Am I a thief? I mean, why is he being accused of being a thief at that moment? He's not coming. He's certainly not coming to take the guy's cattle. He has, I heard from Reb Shlomo, listen to this, an outrageous thought, that Yaakov Avinu was the richest person who ever lived. The richest person who ever lived. He's not coming to take like five goats from this guy. That, that's not what's going on right now. And yet, he goes to the other side and the guy says, Oh, I see, you're a thief. You're coming to steal from me. So now comes the wrestling match. Is, am I a thief? What about with this whole thing with this blessing? What about this whole thing that it looks like there's 400 soldiers waiting to kill me and my entire family and take all of my possessions? Is this because I did something wrong? And now, finally, it's, it's, it's coming, to, coming back, it's boomeranging back on me? Because it says, by the way, all the rabbis say at the very beginning that Yaakov worried, maybe I did something wrong. This was, so it doesn't say what what he could have done wrong that he was worried about, it doesn't provide that. We're making a suggestion right now, since one of the key things was that, and by the way, by the way, um, the Medrash says, when he wakes up with Leah, right, because he thinks he's waking up with Rachel, he wakes up with Leah, he says, what is this? She says, oh, it's so interesting, didn't you disguise yourself as your brother? This is what Leah says to him, according to the Medrash. Can you imagine? So it's not like it's not like this event happened when he was younger. By the way, it says it was when he was thirteen. Okay, he's I think over a hundred at this point. Okay, so it's not this is something that's come back to haunt him through 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 his life. Now all of a sudden he hears this voice, maybe from inside himself or maybe from outside himself. We, we don't know. Oh, you're a thief. But we can't bring this up without completing the thought. He wins the battle. He wins the battle. And he's not a thief. He is not a thief. We, we can't go into a whole discussion of this without, without resolving it. He is absolutely 100% not a thief. He's done, he's done nothing wrong. But, he's done nothing wrong. But the way he resolves it is in the way that he meets his brother, which shows us that he went through transformation. Yes, and by the way, by the way, according to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, yes. 
the author of the Zohar. Esav hates Yaakov. This is a fundamental dynamic that's built into the world, and this is just one of the essential elements of the world until Mashiach comes. Esav hates Yaakov. Now, according to Rabbi Shimon Barakai, who says that thought, who says that thought, when, when Esav greeted Yaakov and kissed him, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says that he did it with all of his heart. Yes. So even the one who is the most, if you, you could say, anti-Esav, in terms of talking about that epic sort of like conflict that's built into nature, even he says that when Esav kissed Yaakov, that it was for real. And so as you're saying that the, the forgiveness was granted Bamis. So this is, this is, this is, anyway, this is, yeah. It says Hashem Lachem Lachem. Yeah, translate. That God fights for, for you, for us. Yeah. So why do we have to fight? <clears throat> it's Hashem Why do we have to do anything? Why do we have to eat? <laughs> why do we have to do anything? Because this is called Olamasiya. This is called the world of action. And we're here to do things. This is not, this is not a... Um, remember, I, I, like I always say, but it's such, to me, such an important premise. Like, you can't understand your life or this world without understanding this. Everybody thinks that the Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa, and that it would have stayed that way, but we had to eat from the tree and blow it. So if you look in the Chumash, that's not what it says. It says that we were put in the garden, this is before we ate from the tree, to work and guard the garden. To work and guard the garden. Which means that from the very outset, this whole world, this whole mission, this whole lifetime is a work session. This is a work session. It doesn't mean that life isn't beautiful. That doesn't mean that there aren't happy occasions. But it's a work session. Then we eat from the tree of knowledge and everything like that. And then it's like, oh, now, now you're really going to have to work. But it's not like you didn't have to work and now you have to work. No, you had to work. Now it's going to come even harder. But it was, not working was never on the table. <laughs> it, was, it was never on the table not working. It was always about working. So, yes, God fights for us. It's true. But that doesn't mean that this isn't still a work session. One thing, uh, that, or, like uh, about Yonah and uh, it's read uh, actually read on Yom Kippur. So, um. Yes, yes, that's you know this this uh, article by Rabbi Khan just talks about that, and then he he extends it. He says since this was the night, yeah. because it talks about how. Um, you know, there's these two goats that we bring as part of the Yom Kippur service, and they're, they're identical goats. And one goes and is sacrificed on the Mizbeach, and the other goat is thrown off the cliff, and we say that it's to Azazel. It's a very mystical idea, like it's to, you know, to the other side. It's, it's, there's a lot of very intense, amazing Torah on it. But, but since Yaakov Avinu is sending goats, among other things, to Esav, there's this, the Zohar is finding a, a, this reference to Yom Kippur 
in this whole battle. You know, perhaps it was even Yom Kippur that the whole thing was taking place. In which case, the wrestling with the angel that night is called Nidre. Right? So then that gives a whole thing because what are we doing on, Yom, on, on Kol Nidre? We're beginning this ultimate wrestling match with ourselves. 